Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day. Sunday evening, October 4th, 1970. That's Paul Rothschild's on the line. Where's Janice? She's late. Janice is never late for recording sessions. Vince Mitchell started asking around. Nobody saw Janice reading by the pool. Nope. Not once. Not all day. Huh. Funny. She always spent a piece of the afternoon reading by the pool. A lot of people didn't know that about Janice, Vince said later, that she loved to read. Miss Avid Bookworm, he called her. Magazines sometimes, the music trades, of course, gossip rags, but uh, more often novels, bios, books of poetry, drawn to the doomed and fabulous women. She obsessed over Zelda Fitzgerald, read everything about Zelda, affected her, sometimes in dress, or collections of poems. She favored Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Hard to miss out there. Sunglasses, big hat, and a paperback. Uh, cigarettes, lighter, and a drink close at hand, draped over a chaise lounge. By the pool, at the Landmark Hotel, on Franklin Boulevard in Hollywood. I'd like to do a song of great social and political import. It goes like this. Oh, Lord! Won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me Erstwhile lover, longtime roadie, steady and increasingly concerned friend of Vince had been one of the few constants in her life over the last few years. He knew Janice like few others. He asked everyone, are, are you sure? Yeah, no, I haven't seen her all, all day. Something was off. Rothschild's was right. Janice could be a flake, but not when it came to recording sessions. In fact... She would give the guy shit about straggling in late or setting up slow. I'm fucking paying for this, she would growl at them. And Janice had never been this excited about the music. The afternoon-slash-early-evening sessions at Sunset Sound with Paul Rothschild producing were going well. Janice was focused and engaged, a producer's dream during the Pearl sessions, Rothschilds recalled. She'd put together the full-tilt boogie band over the last six months, and they were a potent and professional outfit, tight, punchy, versatile, the realization of a dream she had four summers back at the Monterey Pop Festival when she stood in the wings and watched Otis Redding summon the power and how Booker T and the MGs would deliver it on cue. She wanted that musical power for herself. Now she finally had it. After the session, a few drinks in, she'd... Tell the boys how much she loved them. Said, if you ever leave me, I'll kill you. I'll just fucking kill you. 
Something was up. Something was wrong. Nobody had seen a reading by the pool. The Porsche with the psychedelic paint job was still in the parking lot. Vince's guts were in a knot now. He stopped by John Cook's room, road manager for Janice from the beginning. Sharp, dedicated, and kind of supercilious twerp, according to Vince. He was hosting a small but noisy room party at the landmark. Vince didn't have much use for his putative boss, but John was more or less sober. Vince pulled him out of the room. At Vince's suggestion, John Cook acquired a passkey from the weekend clerk. I performed an autopsy on the body of Janice Joplin at Office of Chief Medical Examiner Coroner, Hall of Justice, Los Angeles, California. And from the anatomic findings and pertinent history, I ascribe the death to acute heroin morphine intoxication due to injection of overdose. The unembalmed body is that of a Caucasian female appearing the stated age of 27. A tattoo of a bracelet is present around the left wrist. A small tattoo of a flower is present just behind the lateral malleolus on the right heel. John Cook wanted to call the cops. No, no, hold, hold up, not so fast, Vince said urgently. Call Albert, Albert Grossman. Ask him what he wants us to do. Janice's manager, Albert, was also a fixer and a fighter, and Vince wanted him running interference, even if it was over the phone from upstate New York. Albert quickly got a doctor out to the landmark, but the body was cold to the touch. Janice Joplin was long gone, dead for about 18 hours. Janis Joplin, one of the better-known singers in the world of rock music, was found dead in her Hollywood apartment last night. The cause of death was said to be an overdose of drugs. Miss Joplin became a sensation when she appeared at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1957. Here is a report on her brief career from ABC Scott Osborne. Janice had quit heroin earlier that year, cold turkey. She took a trip, went where she knew she wouldn't be able to score, and went through it. Back in L.A., late summer, she started chipping, using a little here and there, but trying to keep it under control. Her tolerance wasn't what it once was, and some especially potent smack was going around. Vince Mitchell said eight people died from heroin ODs in Los Angeles County that same weekend. It is well established, according to the law and according to the street, that an influx of powerful Asian heroin, China White, started right then and there in Los Angeles, summer and fall of 1970. Seems like she got a hold of some. Here's the Joplin biographer Alice Eccles from Scars of Sweet Paradise. In a creepy turn, the drug's purity quickly became its selling point. The week after she died, L.A. dealers hawked the dope by boasting, It's so strong, it OD'd Janice. Death was not immediate. 
which has led to some spinning and conspiracy mongering. Janice shot up, uh, carefully and neatly put her kid away, got up and left her room, walked down to the front desk and got changed for the cigarette machine, made some small talk with the night clerk. And her room was tampered with. Before the cops arrived, someone removed a small balloon of heroin, then came back later and left it in the trash can. Vince Mitchell has always said he can't prove it, but he can't shake the feeling that he was not the person who first found Janis Joplin dead. He believes somebody had been in the room before him. So the waters were muddy, perhaps, but nothing here negates the stark reality expressed in the coroner's report. She missed a vein and injected it into muscle tissue, so it didn't kill her right away. It's not common with heroin ODs, but it's not unheard of either. As for the missing but then not missing balloon, a bunch of people were in the room before and after the cops and coroner arrived. Someone tried to help, realized what a dumb idea that was, and awkwardly tried to cover their tracks. What's left behind is Pearl, her second and final studio album released by Columbia, January of 1971. The blockbuster, critically acclaimed multi-platinum album Janis Joplin was always meant to record, with an ace producer, Paul Rothschilds, at the helm, and a killer backup group, the Full Tilt Boogie Band. It's really about, oh, 80% of an album. A couple of tracks, like the title cut we just played, were waiting for Janice to record vocals. The day she died, Janice was scheduled to cut vocals for a tune called Buried Alive in the Blues. But even at 80%, there's still plenty. Move Over, written by Janice, might be our favorite song by her. It's a smoldering, bluesy Texas rocker that kicks off the album and sets the tone just right. Get It While You Can, an overlooked gem from 1967 by the soul singer Howard Tate, reworked it with the boys and they turned it into a monster. Great rhythm section playing, stinging guitar, lush keyboards, and Janice just pours emotion into it. Me and Bobby McGee, written by Chris Christopherson, starts as an earthy country ballad. That's uh, Janice playing acoustic guitar at the beginning. It's a tantalizing look at what Janice could do with country and folk material and where she might have gone with her music if she'd had the chance. It builds, slow and steady, modulates up a step for the last verse. Then this magnificent ride out where everyone takes a solo and just kills it. Four and a half minutes, but you get the feeling they could have kept going for another 20. It shot to number one and stayed there until April. It was the second posthumous number one single in history. The first one, Dock of the Bay by Janis Joplin's hero, Otis Redding. 
busted flat in Ben Rouge, waiting for a train, and us feeling near as faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained, and rode us all the way into New Orleans. I pulled my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana. I was playing soft while Bobby sang the blues. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It will discuss adult themes and may use coarse language. Pantheon Podcasts presents Rock and Roll Archaeology with host Christian Swain. Music. Culture. Technology. And now, on with the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. A few years ago, as some of you may know, I lived through a mass shooting. And as much as I'd like to think I handled it just fine... Looking back, I experienced some PTSD. I did seek therapeutic help, and I have to say it was significant in my recovery and letting go of the event. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in your relationships or at work. You know, not dealing well with stress. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, or even live chat sessions with your therapist. So, you know, you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because, you know, you are your greatest asset. And we've got a special offer to Rock and Roll Archaeology listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash Pantheon as your code. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantheon. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Hey, Diggers, welcome back. Uh, it's good to be back with another epic show. And back to the 1970s. A lot of reading and research goes into these main episodes. So please, thanks. Thanks so much for being patient with us. Speaking of which, our best resource for contemporaneous relevant articles about rock and roll culture is an amazing one-of-a-kind web archive called Rock's Back Pages. Uh, we're subscribers, and we wholeheartedly recommend RBP. That's rocksbackpages.com 
Um, we use it all the time. It kicks ass. And uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. Plus, if you don't already know, they have a podcast on the Pantheon Network. So go check that out as well. All right, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor here, this, uh, this show. It's uh, called Boldfoot. This is a 100% American-made sock company. Their motto is grown here, sewn here. And 5% of all the proceeds go to veterans' charities. They are a family and veteran-owned business. And they have a wide variety of styles and colors. Really, folks, it's a lot of fun just to go and hang out and pick some crazy socks. You know, something uh, I noticed a, a few years ago with the with the, the the kids. You know, I've got a 22 year old, so it, it's like their socks is their main fashion statement. So hey, if you got uh, young kids uh, that uh, you know need a spicing up of their uh, fashion. Um, well, here you go. Uh, go to boldfoot.com. That's again, that's boldfoot.com. All right. Uh, a little, a little update on the shorts. Um, it sounds like you guys are all digging the quick takes. So we will continue to do both the shorts and the big shoe at the same time. You all know how long it takes us to put these epics together, but the shorts don't necessarily affect the main show. Uh, conversely, Actually, the shorts give us a chance to step back on another topic, allow us to get out of the chronological timeline, clear our heads, and um, they've provided uh, some inspiration for the original RNRAP. So expect both coming at you from now on. Okay, last bit before we launch um, a quick word about the title, and rather apropos uh, at the moment, uh, if you're listening here in. June of 2022. The second wave refers to the second wave of feminism, which starts to take shape right here at the beginning of the 70s. On the morning after the 60s is the title of an essay by the late Joan Didion, an essayist and cultural observer whom we greatly admire. It denotes a shift. It signifies a new reality. It seemed appropriate, especially given the news that Roe v. Wade was just overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, anyhow, that's where the title comes from and where we're coming from on this one. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Diggers, we are so excited to bring you Rock and Roll Archaeology Chapter 22, The Second Wave on the Morning After the 60s. Opening an arena show for a major act is not necessarily the plum gig one might imagine it to be. 45 minutes, at most, to win the audience over. If you do not grab them in the first few minutes, well, then good luck to you, because you're going to need it. Challenge accepted. Time and again, they proved their mettle. They would win over skeptical audiences with great playing and singing, cool covers, and strong originals. 10, 12, 15,000 fans at a time, opening for the likes of Slade, Chicago, Humble Pie, Jethro Tull, TV appearances on Midnight Special, The Old Grey Whistle Test, The Dick Cavett Show, oh, they tore it up on Cavett, and headlined at Carnegie Hall the next night. 
Where Fanny really gets it all on is on gigs, with nothing between them and you but a space full of smoke and bodies. Fanny are an unfettered delight, a beautiful band to watch and hear. That's an unedited clip from Cream Magazine uh, reviewing a Boston gig in 1971. We found the article in Rock's Back Pages. Rolling Stone magazine was dismissive at first, but they came around with a well-deserved four-star review of their third studio album, Fanny Hill, released in 1972. A band called Fanny, out of Los Angeles, California. Fanny was the first. There were women singers, musicians, and girl groups backed by men, but no all-female rock band had released an album on a major label before their 1970 eponymous debut. Their sinewy rock was exultant, psychedelia-kissed, funky, tough, and tender. Their multi-part harmonies had a familial core. Sisters June and Jean Millington, they'd been playing together since they were kids in the Philippines. So to say they sounded sisterly is not just a reflection of their era or a feminist statement. It's a fact. That's Meredith Oaks, and we love her book, Rock and Roll Woman, The 50 Fiercest Women Rockers. Meredith is one of us. She's a rock and roll archaeologist, and her area of expertise is women in rock. You may remember me interviewing Ms. Oaks on our Deeper Digs podcast. So go get her book, follow her online. You'll love it. Fanny wasn't a gimmick, a product, or a promotion. They were a real working rock band, like their heroes, the Beatles. They were self-contained, homegrown. We'll go maybe a step further than Meredith. We think Fanny would have, and really should have, made it, and made it far. Made it from respected, hard-working, mid-level rock band to the big-time, you know, platinum albums and headlining arena tours, finally making some real money. If they'd just been able to hang on a little bit longer, oh, they were right there. They had the requisite goods. They could write and play and sing, and they were tough and ambitious. But the pressure of being the first women stacked on top of the demands of a music career, it just proved to be too much, and that's a damn shame. By early 73, they were three straight years on the road, living in hotels, moving on from town to town, plugging the gig on the morning radio, signing albums at the local record stores in the afternoon, early evening sound check, and run through. June Millington played lead guitar, sang, and was one of the two principal songwriters in the band. Her sister Jean Millington, one year younger, played bass and sang. Jean could bump a Motown groove or play slinky counter-melodies on bass and sing her ass off while doing it, just like her musical hero Paul McCartney. Alice DeBurr, a child prodigy from Mason City, Iowa, was a superb drummer, rounded out the back line. She kept it all nailed to the floor and sang strong backups as well. 
Nikki Barclay played keys and was the other main songwriter. Like any keyboardist singer worth mentioning, Nikki was heavily influenced by Ray Charles. Most of Fanny's best originals came from Nikki. Someone had to be first, but being first and being women in 1971 just meant they had to be twice as good to get half as far and put up with a ton of misogynistic bullshit along the way. These women were world-class professionals, still in their early 20s, playing wholly original content on some of America and Europe's finest stages, recording at Sunset Sound in Hollywood and Apple Studios in London, on the radio, on TV, killing it night after night. They weren't big million-selling stars yet, but they were doing what a lot of rock bands did in the 70s, working hard and building a loyal following out on the road, headlining at clubs and opening the show at the big arenas, recording quality albums, and each one was better than the last. And what did they hear day after goddamn day? (laughs) Some variation of the same tired old theme. Hey, you rock for a bunch of girls. Every interview, every appearance, every show, they had to push back on the same assumptions, answer the same stupid fucking questions. When they headlined, promoters thought they were a gimmick, or strippers. More than a few times, they got asked if they were going to play their sets topless. We were so inured, really, to all kinds of humiliating spectacles, June Millington said years later in a magazine interview. In late 73, June felt her mental health starting to slip, so she wisely stepped away. June carved out a successful career in music, but from that point, it was mostly out of the spotlight, teaching, session work. In the 80s, she founded and ran an indie record label. In 1987, June Millington co-founded a nonprofit to mentor, teach, and support young women and help them build a career in music. The Institute for Musical Arts operates to this day. Founded by Ann Hackler and June Millington, IMA is located on a 200-year-old farm in Massachusetts. The largest barn has been converted into a performance and teaching facility and includes a world-class recording studio. We work hard at IMA to nourish well-being in mind, body, spirit, and music, fostering a greater sense of confidence and capability in girls and young women. From the IMA's mission statement. Now, here at RNRA, we love the cause of music education for young people, so we'll drop a link to IMA in the show notes. Help out if you can. All right, back to Fanny. Their third record, Fanny Hill, was recorded at Apple Studios in London. Fanny was big in the UK. They always did better there than in the States. 
Beatles engineer Jeff Emmerich ran the soundboard for that one. That's the album with the scorching cover of Hey Bulldog that we played earlier. We just love that cut. Fanny's fourth record, Mother's Pride, was produced by Todd Rundgren. But we get the idea that the relationship between producer and band was eh, not great. Yeah, it happens. The album is terrific, though. Like Meredith Oakes said earlier, funky and tough and tender. And it's got that polish and technical excellence that Todd always brings to recording projects. Soon after the sessions for Mother's Pride wrapped, June and drummer Alice DeBurr left the band. He was hard as a rock, but I was ready to roll. What a shock to find out. I was in control of the situation. I didn't need no time or destination. Said, say you look fine. Have I met you before? I said your place of mine is getting harder to be sure. Fanny soldiered on for one more album and tour. They brought in Patty Quattro, Susie Quattro's younger sister, for guitars and vocals, and their original drummer, Bree Howard Darling, came back. This lineup made a fifth and final album on Casablanca Records, Rock and Roll Survivors, released in 1974. They got a top 30 single out of it, that sassy, dirty, sexy number we just heard, Butter Boy, <laughs> that was written at least partly about Gene's affair with David Bowie. To the end of his life, David was a huge fan. The Starman often touted Fanny in press interviews, and his guitarist and sidekick Earl Slick is also a big booster. Revivify Fanny, Bowie said in a 2001 interview. Then my work will be done. Earl Slick uh, put it more bluntly. It's always the ones that started that get fucked, he says in the 2021 documentary Fanny, The Right to Rock. Quick little side note, uh, just as we put this chapter into production, we learned that The Right to Rock, written and directed by Bobby Joe Hart, has been picked up by a distributor and will be in wide release in the summer of 2022. The doc has done well in limited release at art houses around the country and has generated some real buzz on the festival circuit. Ms. Hart was kind enough to give us an advanced screening to The Right to Rock. Uh, we watched it and thoroughly enjoy it. But uh, sorry, no spoilers. <laughs> but we do recommend it, so keep an eye out for The Right to Rock. This is a great rock and roll story, a story that deserves to be much more widely seen and heard. Fifty years later, it's not too late to get behind Fanny.
Even before Tapestry, Carole King built a songwriting career good enough to make her a slam dunk for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We had a lot of fun putting together that small sampler of her prodigious output. We'll start with one of our favorite Carole King stories from her memoir, Natural Woman, about the song of the same name. Natural Woman, Aretha Franklin's crossover hit from 1967, was the last song Carole wrote with her first husband, Jerry Goffin. So, Carol and Jerry are walking down Broadway, and Jerry Wexler, then the vice president of Atlantic Records, spots them from the back of his limo. Wex tells the driver to yank it over to the curb, rolls down the window, and hollers at his ace songwriting team, I'm looking for a really big hit for Aretha. How about writing a song called Natural Woman? Standing on the sidewalk, Carol and Jerry exchange a look. Um, okay, good title. Sure, we can do that. The tinted windows roll up, wax disappears, and the limo slides back into Manhattan traffic. At home that evening, Carol came up with some gospel chords in 6-8 time. Jerry wrote down the words, and the next morning they recorded a simple piano vocal demo. Wax listened to it, loved it, grabbed up the tape, and hurried out of the office. Days went by. The two songwriters had no idea when, or even if, Aretha was going to cut the track. All right, here's Carol King from her memoir. Hearing Aretha's performance of Natural Woman for the first time, I experienced a rare speechless moment. To this day, I can't convey how I felt in mere words. Anyone who had written a song in 1967, hoping it would be performed by a singer who could take it to the highest level of excellence, emotional connection, and public exposure would surely have wanted that singer to be Aretha Franklin. <laughs> well stated. Oh, and uh, you know, lots of Aretha, by the way, uh, from us in Chapter 6 of Rock and Roll Archaeology. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing We'll move about a half mile southwest of the landmark motel. 1416 North La Brea takes up half a city block. Charlie Chaplin bought the lot in 1917 and built his studio there. Chaplin's 1940 masterpiece, The Great Dictator, was mostly shot here. In 1953, Chaplin sold the property to developers. It passed through several owners. Then in 1967, AM Records bought it up. Early 90s, Jim Henson bought the facility and turned it into Muppet Central. Now, back when AM still owned the joint, we went to some music industry trade show hosted there. Yeah, softly lit, and we recall oak paneled hallways, funky and twisty and narrow. Uh, without signs and ropes and arrows, we probably would have ended up somewhere we weren't welcome. We spotted Studio C and through an open door as we walked by. A control room, the usual glass partitions, some movable room dividers, and sound baffles, uh, you know, so it was very cozy, intimate, and softly lit. Most of Tapestry, Carol King's second solo album, was recorded down the hall in Studio B, 
but the piano was in Studio C. The reddish Steinway Grand was extraordinary. It's legendary. It felt good to play, and it had a certain uh, indefinable quality, uh, a resonance. But Joni Mitchell had Studio C, and Joni was deep into the recording sessions that yielded her fourth album, Blue. When we learned that Studio C was available one night, we grabbed it. We felt no particular sense of urgency until the studio manager came in to inform Lou that we had Studio C for only three hours and then Joni was coming in. That's Carol narrating the audiobook version of her memoir, Natural Woman. So, they got to work. Carol sat down at the Red Steinway, Charlie Larkey played bass, Joel O'Brien was behind the kit, and the cooch, the ace session player Danny Korchmar, played guitar. In under three hours, they cut the basic tracks for... I Feel the Earth Move, You've Got a Friend, and Carol's version of Natural Woman. Three top ten songs in three hours. The knowledge that Studio C was only available for short stretches pushed Carol and the band to work efficiently and quickly. That set the tone for the rest of the sessions. Tapestry took three weeks to record, mix down, and master. It was released just two weeks after the sessions wrapped up on February 10th, 1971. You got to get up every morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. Then people gonna treat you better. You're gonna find, yes you will, that you're beautiful. At 25 million units and counting, Tapestry is a massive commercial accomplishment. It spent over 300 weeks on the charts. Only Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon exceeded that. It won four Grammys the following year, including Album of the Year. But beyond the sales numbers and the awards and the hype, Tapestry tracked perfectly with what a lot of women were thinking and feeling, and it still does. This is Tanya Pearson, director of the Women in Rock Oral History Project. Sincere, earnest, and personal, Tapestry embodied the emerging argument, the personal is political. This phrase became a defining characteristic of second wave feminism. The personal is political. We'll unpack that some more in just a bit, but for now we want to stick with our discussion of Tapestry. Weird, weird coincidence about Tapestry, something we haven't really seen or read anywhere else. We just happen to remember this because we grew up in SoCal in the 1970s. The album kicks off with I Feel the Earth Move. On February 9th, 1971, Carol King's 29th birthday and the day before Tapestry was released, a major earthquake shook the communities of Silmar and San Fernando up at the far north end of Los Angeles. In the weeks following the quake, as L.A. picked up the pieces, radio stations across the Southland played the song in heavy rotation. News reports and feature stories about the quake used the song as a backup. 
I Feel the Earth Move was released as a double-sided single a few months later, and it spent five weeks at number one. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time. There's something wrong here, there can be no denying. One of us is changing, or maybe we just stop trying. The other side of the single, the hot and the cold, the alpha and the omega of a relationship, if there is a more realistic, more adult song about a breakup than It's Too Late, well, we haven't heard it yet. No weeping or gnashing of teeth. No, I can't live without you, baby. Just resignation and sadness facing the facts. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time. From there, it moves on to hope and resilience. There'll be good times again for me and you. And a final gracious goodbye. I'm glad for what we had and how I once loved you. Tony Stern wrote the plain-spoken conversational verses. Carol punctuates each phrase on the piano with a simple but uh, memorable rhythmic figure. Yeah, I'll wait a second. Yeah, you know the one. Season it lightly with some tasty guitar from Danny Korchmar, and it's three minutes and 53 seconds of bittersweet radio perfection. So far away, doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore? It would be so fine to see your face at my doesn't help to know you're just time away long ago I reached for you and there you stood holding you again could only do me good how I wish I could Carol starts with the loneliness that comes from physical distance and uses that as a jumping off point to way to sing about the emotional distance she feels and then she brings it back doesn't help to know you're so far away and it doesn't help to know you're so far away with tapestry carol king did for the female voice what Bob Dylan achieved years earlier for the male voice. She liberated it from frills and technical artifice, and in doing so, Carol created a new space for women singer-songwriters to inhabit. Women in rock were now free to do what the guys had been doing for a while, sing it easy and conversational, tell stories. All right, so circling back around now, The Personal is Political is the title of a 1970 essay by the American feminist writer Carol Hanisch. It's a pithy, memorable distillation of an idea expressed by Betty Friedan in The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, and one of the canonical books of American feminist thought. Friedan called it 
the problem that has no name. At her 15-year reunion at Smith College, she heard story after story from her female classmates um, how they felt trapped, unhappy in their roles as wives, mothers, and homemakers. These women mostly blamed their dissatisfaction on themselves. Frieden blamed it on the position of women in society. The renowned American sociologist C. Wright Mills also identified and discussed the intersection of personal problems and public policy in his 1959 book, The Sociological Imagination. It was not well received at the time. Mills had a combative personality, for one thing, but The Sociological Imagination is now a foundational text for social science undergrads. So, the personal is political has an intellectual family tree, if you will, that we can trace back, and that lineage takes in some heavyweights of 20th century thought. But for Carol Hanisch, as much as anything, the personal is political was a disgusted reaction to the sexism and misogyny she experienced working in the anti-war movement. And we touched on this in Chapter 17 of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Here's what we said. For all their talk of liberation and equality, the new left was just another boys' club. They were deeply compromised by the same old patriarchy, the same old hateful notions of sexism ingrained into the very institutions they opposed. It was a glaring hypocrisy. You could drive a Mack truck through it. Towards the end of the piece, Miss Hanish lets it rip. Women have left the movement in droves. The obvious reason is that we are tired of being sex slaves and doing shit work for men whose hypocrisy is so blatant in their political stance of liberation for everybody else. Now, Carol King was hardly a social radical. She was a New Jersey housewife and mom whose day job was writing hit songs at the Brill Building. Even after Tapestry, when she was a no-kidding bonafide rock star, Carol booked tours only if she could take the kids with her. On her way to the stage, she would stop a moment to sternly but lovingly admonish them to finish their homework and brush their teeth. But in 1968, she divorced her philandering husband, packed up the kids, the dog, the cat, and pointed the station wagon west, ending up in Laurel Canyon. My life has been a tapestry of rich and royal hue, an everlasting vision of the ever-changing view, a wondrous woven magic in bits of blue and gold, a tapestry to feel and see, impossible to hold. Once amid the soft silver sadness in the sky. So, how do Carol King's earnest and personal songs about feeling the earth move or feeling so far away, how do they fit into feminism? How do they adhere to this schema of the personal is political? The first beneficiaries of the women's movement purchased female singer-songwriter music because it offered them an authentic female voice and an alternative to the romance script. That's the historian Judy Catullus from a 2010 paper from the Journal of American History. More simply put, representation matters. Starting around 1970 or so, women finally started hearing and seeing themselves, started hearing about their own lives and loves in rock music, and they responded. 
Now, just for context, uh, this is a quick recap of how the legal environment was changing for women at this moment in early 1971. In 1970, California instituted no-fault divorce. Other states quickly followed suit. In 1969, Hawaii legalized abortion. New York, Washington, and Alaska soon did the same. The case that would eventually be known as Roe v. Wade, it originated in Texas, was already working its way up to the high court. In 1965, the Supreme Court ruled that married women could access contraception. In 1970, that right to privacy was extended to all women. In the 1969 case Loving v. Virginia, the Supreme struck down all state laws prohibiting interracial marriage. Rock and roll reflects and reflects back on what's going on in the larger society. We say that a lot around here. Tapestry was in the right place at the right time with the right songs. It's like a first draft of history for women. sure looks bad they won't give peace a chance that was just a dream some of us had still a lot of lines to see but i wouldn't want to stay here it's too old and cold and settled in its ways a restless woman travels falls in love and longs for what she left behind as she moves on in the background 1960s ideals crumble Joni Mitchell turned unsparing autobiography into sparse songs that quietly rejected symmetry and happy endings while they poured out her yearning. As she ushered in a confessional mode for pop songwriting, few of her emulators noticed that her seemingly unguarded revelations were so finely constructed. In early 2000, the New York Times compiled a list of 25 albums from the 20th century they deemed were the most impactful. Joni Mitchell's Blue, her fourth album, was on that list. The quote was pulled from that article. Joni's body of work is towering and magnificent. We quickly run out of superlatives. And to be completely honest, a little intimidating to talk about. There's just so much, and it's so good, but we'll try to do it justice. A child came out to wonder Caught a dragonfly inside a jar Fearful when the sky was full of Roberta Joan Anderson was born on November 7, 1943, in Fort McLeod, Alberta, where the broad prairie runs into the eastern slope of the Canadian Rockies. Roberta Joan was an only child. Her father, William, was a Royal Canadian Air Force flight instructor. Her mother, Myrtle, was a school teacher. After the war, William hung up his wings and ran a grocery store. When she was nine, the Anderson family moved to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Joni has always referred to Saskatoon as her hometown. A quick 
pause to cite our main sources. First off, JoniMitchell.com. For the serious or the casual fan, it's a treasure trove. Every big artist should have a website like this. Second, two books we like a lot. David Yaffe's definitive bio, Reckless Daughter, published in 2017, and Sheila Weller's Girls Like Us from 2008. Now, David sat down and chatted with us about his book on our sister podcast, Deeper Digs and Rock, and we'll drop a link to that. And our very first RNA short features, well, Joni Mitchell. So we got your Joni Mitchell content, gang. As well we should. The New York Times is right. Joni is one of the giants of 20th century music. And right here, in the early 70s, with the albums Blue for the Roses and Court and Spark, Joni Mitchell hit an artistic and commercial peak that only a few songwriters have matched and none have exceeded. All right, back to the story. She liked to draw and paint, and she took piano lessons early on, but it didn't really stick. She was an active, curious kid, outdoorsy, interested in athletics. Smart, but not much of a student. In her own telling, not a big reader as a kid. That came later. She contracted polio in 1952, not long after the move to Saskatoon, and that was the end of any athletic ambitions nine-year-old Roberta Joan might have had. Fellow Canadian Neil Young also contracted polio that year. Neil was just seven. Polio was eradicated in most of the developed world by 1979, and that was some great news. It's a grim disease. Most of the victims are children. The symptoms are excruciating, and it can cause permanent paralysis and weakness. The early 50s outbreak of polio in North America was a bad one, the worst ever recorded, over 60,000 cases, more than 3,000 deaths in 1952 alone. Again, almost all of them were children. Joni was hospitalized for weeks. Myrtle Anderson stayed home with her daughter for months afterwards, nursing her back to health. Ironically, just a few months later at the University of Pittsburgh, a team led by Dr. Jonas Salk announced and developed a polio vaccine. One night towards the end of the sessions at AM, like we said, right down the hall from Carol King, one night old friend Chris Christopherson stopped by and Joni played back blue for him. He told Joni, hey, keep a little for yourself. You can hold some back. In Joni's own telling, she was like a cellophane wrapper on a pack of cigarettes, on the surface and transparent, easily crushed and discarded. Blue was a solid hit at the time. The critics loved it too, but it wasn't a commercial blockbuster like Tapestry. There are grace notes of resilience and defiance here and there, but it's blue, sad and quiet, achingly personal. There was no obvious single on it. Blue acquired its towering reputation over a period of decades. It is now Joni's best-selling album. It finally passed up Court and Spark a few years ago.
in her own words, Joni's weird chords. <laughs> She's been asked about it quite a bit, about her unconventional approach to the guitar and her alternate tunings. 57 different guitar tunings have been identified across her body of recordings. Some of them are not all that weird. You Turn Me On on a radio uses open detuning. It's fairly common, even we know about that one. It all goes back to her childhood polio. Her left hand was weakened by the disease, so when Joni first learned guitar, she used different tunings to get easier chord shapes. Over time, Joni rebuilt her hand's strength, and the weird chords were no longer a physical necessity. But she continued to use them anyway, because that's just how she hears music. She works outside of rock and pop forms and conventions. Her melodies have wide jumps. Her harmonies are dense and often jazzy. Her compositions can be asymmetrical in their cadence and structure. For an example, we'll stick with You Turn Me On on the radio. It's one of her simpler songs, but it still has that asymmetry. The third verse has a slightly different cadence to it. It differs from the first two. Joni just knocked it out in one day. It was kind of a poke at her manager, David Geffen, who griped about the lack of a radio-friendly hit single on Blue. So, on the next album, For the Roses, she included a song with finely crafted lyrics about wildflowers and broadcasting towers waving at you. Ended it with, Call me at the station, the lines are open. Joni Mitchell's first hit single that wasn't a cover by another artist. It cracked the top 20 in America and the top 10 in Canada. There you go, David. There's your radio hit. fall of 73, Joni released Court and Spark, her first album on a new label, Asylum Records. It had a couple of big radio hits on it, including that one written about David Geffen. Dealing with dreamers and telephone screamers, stoking the star maker machinery behind the popular song. Court and Spark was her big commercial breakthrough, a multi-platinum smash. Joni's first album done with a full band, The L.A. Express. A sharp, technically proficient jazz fusion outfit Joni spotted one night at a local club. This is when Joni did her rock star turn, hitting the road with the LA Express and releasing a great double live album from that tour, Miles of Isles. And that was it. It's almost like Joni just wanted to prove to everybody that she could do it and do it easily. So she made the big hit record, did the big arena tour, put out the big live album. And once she checked off those boxes, she just walked away. Gonna make a lot of money, and then I'm gonna leave this crazy scene, goes a line in the song River. And so she did. She went on to make more great albums. We especially like The Hissing of Summer Lawns from 1975 for its bold experimentation. And Joni has done plenty of one-off shows, benefit concerts, guest appearances, and such over the years. 
She did a couple of mini-tours in the late 90s, half a dozen dates here and there playing small theaters. But the Miles of Isles tour was it, Joni's first, last, and only big-time concert tour with a backing band. reputation for being prickly and difficult in interviews, but we don't really see that. At least some of that goes back to an unfortunate piece published by Rolling Stone in 1971. They named Joni Mitchell Old Lady of the Year and included a chart showing her romantic affiliations with various rock stars. Even by 1971 standards, it's uh, some cringy sexist garbage. Joni was understandably furious, and nearly a decade went by before she agreed to another interview with Rolling Stone. For our part, we think her interviews are fascinating, and you can find just about all of them at JoniMitchell.com. She seems entirely self-aware. She understands her own genius. Not insufferable or egotistical about it, just matter of fact. Her work is on a whole other level from most rock and pop fare. She knows that and doesn't mind explaining it. The 2003 Susan Lacey documentary, Joni Mitchell, A Woman of Heart and Mind, from the American Masters series on PBS, has a lot of good interview clips. We dropped a link. Watch it. You'll see what we mean. Joni Mitchell. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your range. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending. And I'll just be getting home with my real to real. There's no comprehending. Joni mostly dropped off the pop culture radar after she stopped touring in the mid-70s, which probably bothered her not at all. She continued to make artsy, interesting albums like Hissing of Summer Lawns or Mingus that were well-regarded, but, you know, sales were middling. In 97, Joni Mitchell was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but she did not attend the ceremony. Now, that same year, Joni was reunited with the daughter she gave up for adoption in 1965, Killoran Gibb. Lyrics from the song Little Green came into new focus. So you sign all the papers in the family name. You're sad and you're sorry, but you're not ashamed. Little Green, have a happy ending. Uh, jump ahead now to 2007. The jazz pianist Herbie Hancock, along with the great saxophonist Wayne Shorter, both longtime friends and admirers of Joni Mitchell, put out River, the Joni Letters, on Verve Records. It features some of the best jazz players alive and some great singers, legends like Nora Jones and Tina Turner and newcomers like Corinne Bailey Ray. River took home Album of the Year at the 2008 Grammys, only the third jazz album to ever win that award. The publicity 
led to a big boost in sales. So a subtle contemplative album of Joni Mitchell's songs reworked by jazz musicians becomes an unlikely late-blooming hit, and Joni gets introduced to a new generation of fans. Her backup catalog got a bump. PBS put A Woman of Heart and Mind back on the viewing schedule. Across the various media, writers started writing and talkers started talking about Joni Mitchell again. In 2015, she was hospitalized with a brain aneurysm, and the recovery was long and arduous. It was months before she could even walk a few steps. In time, she did recover. Uh, Joni showed up at the Kennedy Center in late 2021 to accept a Lifetime Achievement Award, and she sang briefly in public for the first time in many years at the Music Cares Benefits during the 2022 Grammys weekend. She was sporting a cane, but it was good to see her up and around. She seems to enjoy her role as a wise elder. Joni is in her late 70s now, uh, but she has that regal bearing, that confident and direct manner. Yeah, she wears it well. We're now 50 years on from that period in the early 70s we identified as Joni Mitchell's artistic and commercial peak. Half a century since Janis Joplin's Pearl and Carol King's Tapestry, since the young women of Fanny decided that rock and hard was not just for the boys. These women, and others, finally kicked the door open in the early 70s. We can identify a watershed moment here. Things are different, better for women rockers from this point forward, and hallelujah, hooray for that. But friends, we haven't made it all the way, not, not even close. A quick example, in the summer of 2021, Britney Spears finally got her father's legal conservatorship revoked and regained control of her own life and career. Uh, good for you, Britney. But ask yourself, would that have ever happened in the first place to a male artist? <laughs> Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Adele, Nicki Minaj, on and on. Women rule the pop charts these days and have for quite a while now. It's wonderful, awesome, we love it. But how many women are in the music industry executive suites? How many are voting members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? How many women sit in the producer's chair on major recording projects? Where are the big-time recording studios owned and operated by women? 
And the malevolent, uh, awful misogyny that women creators have to endure in online spaces nowadays, uh, just for existing in public, seems like we might be going backwards, doesn't it? We're not hopeless about it, uh, very much the opposite. We're rockers, and that means we are romantics. We're dreamers, sometimes telephone screamers. But kidding aside, we would like some good answers to these and other questions. We'll damn sure keep asking them. We'll wrap up this chapter on that note. Friends, stay safe. Thanks for listening, and keep up the rocking. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Rock and Roll Archaeology. See you next time. Archaeology is written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson at Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, and links at PantheonPodcast.com. All songs can be found for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. Contact us on social. At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods.